For all your fantasy football needs, check out the Ringer Fantasy Football Show with me, Danny Kelly, along with Danny Heifetz and Craig Horlbeck. That's the Ringer Fantasy Football Show on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Town is brought to you by FX's Feud, Capote versus the Swans. The second installment in Ryan Murphy's Feud anthology tells the story of acclaimed writer Truman Capote, once a confidant to society's most elite women, whom he nicknamed the Swans. Starring Naomi Watts, Diane Lane, Chloe Sevigny, Calista Flockhart, Demi Moore, Molly Ringwald, and Tom Hollander. For your Emmy consideration, visit fxnetworks.com FYC. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. It is Friday, December 1st. We're into that last stretch of the year. So the year-end content is really starting to pop up. I love it. Really looking forward to the top 100 songs that make you cry in your car of 2023. Today, we're looking at the year in streaming, though. We've talked about how Netflix is really pulling away from the competition. 250 million subscribers worldwide and profitable. Everyone else, actually including Netflix, raised their prices this year. Most services are cutting back on content at the same time. And the strikes impacted a ton. Today, we're going to go a little deeper into some of those power moves of the year. Lots of action, things that might have seemed impossible just a couple of years ago are now a Tuesday afternoon press release. I think I might go watch some DC movies on Netflix, which is now a thing I can say thanks to Warner Discovery and their money problems. So I brought back Julia Alexander, our expert on the streaming wars. And today we're going to pick our top power moves in streaming, the things that outlets did to try to gain an advantage this year, and whether they're actually working. From The Ringer and Puck, I'm Matt Bellany, and this is The Tap. We are here with Julia Alexander, a returning champion on this show. In addition to being the director of research at Parrot Analytics, she's also a contributor at Puck, where I work and writes about the streaming wars. Welcome, Julia. Thanks for having me. All right. So we are going to do something a little different. We're going to try to convince each other here. Each of us is going to pick three power moves of the year in streaming, things that companies did to try to win over subscribers that were successful, question mark. Often we don't know because we don't get the data, but seemed successful or seemed interesting and kind of a power move. And then by the end of the episode, we will vote. We will try to convince each other. We will vote on the streaming power move of the year. If there is a dispute, Craig will intervene and be the ultimate decider on this one. Um, do you understand the rules? Yes. Okay. Your first streaming power move of the year. I'm going to say Amazon's Black Friday NFL game. That just Oh, happened something recent. Okay, week. good. Yes. Good. Let's talk about that. So they paid $100 million for one NFL game. It was a pretty crappy matchup this first mm-hmm. time. The Jets, no offense, are not good. About under 10 million people watched, according to the services that I have seen. Uh, success, maybe? If you look at what streaming can become in 10 years, I think a lot of what it will look like is in that stream. And so I almost want to zoom out for a little bit and just look at where advertising is. 
we're seeing a decline on the traditional TV ad spend because it's going towards digital. But if you look at third-party analysis, often coming from advertising industry watchdogs, one estimate I saw from a from a research firm said that there will be about $750 billion spent in digital ad spend by 2028. About 24% of that will be lost to total um, ad fraud. What, is, what does that mean, ad fraud? So if you think about um, click troll click farmers, so ads that, oh, okay. that are being clicked, but there's not actually any impact. And So what does that have to do with football on Amazon? Well, here's my thing. So mm-hmm. all of that money that is going towards digital ad spend, you're seeing a lot of it being pulled from TV ad spend because digital has stronger reach, it's got higher reach. And so there is a theoretical stronger impact on that in, on the conversion ratio to actually get people to spend money. But what we don't actually know is anywhere close to what that impact really is. We can kind of estimate, but we don't actually know. And the advantage to having advertising on TV has always been strong reach. And theoretically, people might be watching the TV screen where the ad is playing. What I liked about the Black Friday stream was that it included this aspect of you have to watch the stream in order to know which of the Black Friday deals were coming up. So that way you could use your phone to scan the QR code or you could go to Amazon and get that, uh, that deal at the right specific time. So it's basically, we can't tell if it was successful because we don't know how many how much shit people bought. But here's the thing. So I think if you can say that we have an audience that is not only watching a program where their eyes are on the screen, but they're at a moment where they are feeling an, uh, an increased heightened sense of uh, impulsiveness of I want to buy something, I'm caught up in this moment, I'm watching my favorite Disney Plus show or something's happening and all of a sudden there's a theme park uh, ticket I can buy, there's new attraction that's coming up. If I can look watching uh, Top Chef on and on Peacock and I'm looking at one of the knives they're using, I really like it, and NBC Universal, which has this technology is saying you can go and buy this product because you're watching it and you're in the sense of really strong, I impulsively want to buy something, that's going to have a stronger conversion ratio if we can decrease the barrier to buying something. So the reason I said that this stream was really important isn't because I think the technology is there. You still have to use your phone to go in and buy something like that. Still, we're scanning QR codes like we did 10 years ago. But I think as that technology gets better and as Amazon really and companies like Google and Amazon and Apple really come into the CTV OEM world where they are the gateway to what you are watching, your credit card is stored within their account. And all of a sudden you can buy from your remote control. There's one button you hit buy. I want to buy this product. Forget button. Amazon. Buy sweater. That's it. And all of a sudden, it is that hurdle to convert a viewer into a consumer is much lower. And I can see a lot of ad spending go back that way, especially when there's brand safety with it, especially when there is an awareness of how much potential reach there is on that type of stream versus looking at the digital ad spend. And I think the greatest proof that I have that this is kind of happening is looking at companies like Google trying to figure out ways to get around just their typical ads on Google search or YouTube by finding uh, uh, new partnership opportunities in the YouTube TV space, in the YouTube primetime space, finding ways that they can integrate into actual TV manufacturers to control some of that living room space, to find ways to get advertisers to come back to kind of this linear spend as opposed to just being on the digital side. Amazon, buy Travis Kelsey, Taylor Swift, customized chief sweater. Exactly. That's what Craig's saying. All right, so two things here. I agree, it's a success. I mean, first of all, inserting Amazon into the number one shopping day of the year and having it be a compelling piece of content that at least 10 million people were interested enough to forget whatever they were supposed to be doing on Black Friday and tune into the game and be exposed to the Amazon ecosystem, even if it's just reminding people that they can do all the shopping and avoid the mall by going on Amazon, like that's a win. 
And $100 million for that game is nothing for the volume of spend on Amazon. And Americans nearly spent $10 billion this year on Black Friday, of which when you look at the online market share that Amazon controls from the e-commerce space, they sit at about 36, 37%. Exactly. And secondly, this is the future. Commerce, television, mixing. When people talk about the metaverse, this is actually what they're talking about. A mixture of content you're enjoying and commerce that you are participating in while you're watching. Ultimately, it will be seamless in the experience, not just sports. You could be watching an old 30 Rock episode and all of a sudden you like Tina Fey's shirt she's wearing and you press a button or scream at the TV and then you could buy it. Like, it seems intuitive. It's just a matter of the technology getting there. So I agree. It's a big win for Amazon Black Friday game. All right, my first power move of the year. I'm going to say that it was AMC Plus licensing Mm. their shows to Max. If you don't recall, this happened earlier this year. AMC Plus is a streaming service that AMC has that they have originals there, the Anne Rice shows, and they have a couple other things. And then they have the old AMC catalog there. They did a deal with Max that allowed for a window the AMC Plus shows to go to Max. And I think this is a power move because ultimately it's a sign of the dominant platforms being essentially marketing tools for the smaller platforms. You put a taste of your programming on the big platform and people like it. They at least know who you are. You get some money from the platform and then you can bring some of those customers back with you. It seems seems like a great move there. I mean, obviously, the downside is, is that, you know, people might just subscribe to Max and not ultimately look at your content and it becomes irrelevant. But at that at this point, I think you got to acknowledge that there are dominant platforms and there's everybody else and you got to leverage them however you can. But this is sort of hand in hand with the HBO licensing strategy to Netflix this year. And I assume is that on your list somewhere? That's on my list. And this is what I... So let's talk about both of these together because it goes to this question of cross-promotion, cross-posting, and where we are with that evolution right now. Because everyone freaked out when the HBO shows went to Netflix. Netflix paid a lot of money for them. They did find a new audience. We saw things like The Pacific get onto the Netflix top 10. That is a 15-year-old miniseries that was on HBO and was probably not doing huge numbers, found a new audience on Netflix. And Warner Discovery got some money out of that. They badly need money. And I think it's a win for everyone. Now, the downside, as I've said on this show, is that if you are Max and you are trying to be one of the dominant platforms and ultimately compete with Netflix, there is a limit to what you should be putting on Netflix if you have original content. So... I think they are towing that line right now on what is too much and what is telegraphing to the audience. Hey, you don't need to subscribe to Max to get the shows that you like because we're just going to sprinkle the HBO stuff every few months and you're ultimately going to get there. But a service like AMC Plus, like, fine. Tell people that you have it and put it on Max. I mean, ultimately, these niche services will probably end up being permanent tiles on the major services. But to have it for a little bit right now, fine. I agree. And what I want to ask before I get into my kind of explanation of why the Netflix HBO deal in particular was was really big for me is who do you think wins in both those situations? 
I think Netflix definitely won in the HBO scenario. I mean, it is such a flex to be able to say, we are the dominant platform. Just give us your best content, your old stuff, but best stuff that resonated and people will still watch. And HBO's parent company basically had no choice. They need money so badly. So there's the winner there. But I think AMC is probably the winner in that scenario because they are getting exposure for a streaming service that is so tiny and essentially competes with the big people. It's not like it's a niche service like Shudder or Crunchyroll where it has the niche audience that is going to flock there. AMC Plus is basically airing prestige dramas and they're competing with Max and the others. Now they are leveraging Max. The greatest mistake I think a lot of companies made when they got into streaming was they took the wrong message from Netflix's success. They looked at Netflix and said, all of our content independently is creating this really strong streaming service that subscribers are flocking to. And they said, therefore, all of our content on its own is differentiated. When the vast majority of their content is undifferentiated, most procedurals feel the same, most sitcoms kind of feel the same, and people have their favorites. But what Netflix figured out really well was cable light. We're going to take all your favorite shows. We're going to take, we're going to have some new shows. You're going to come in for a relatively low price. And the fact that it's all within one ecosystem is going to be really strong. The difficulty in streaming is not only are you going to be licensing out content to Netflix, which is going to empower the Netflix ecosystem and people go to watch Stranger Things and now they're watching Suits or they're watching whatever it is that's on Netflix. You have to then bring that audience back as your audience. You have to convert that audience. So what you really need to look at is the overlap of the affinity between the subscriber activity happening on one platform to another. So for example, I would imagine that the vast majority of Netflix subscribers in the United States either have Hulu or Disney+. Plus. I suspect that, you know, Netflix, if we look at that demographic, is a little bit more female than male, very young. We know that Hulu is a little bit of an older demographic, but highly female. Um, Disney+, Plus, highly male, very young. So you can kind of see where there's interest overlaps. Yeah, that's why Disney is so high on Hulu, because it's a complementary audience. Exactly. And so the issue if you are Disney is not necessarily having to bring that Netflix audience and convert them into paying subscribers, as in they're now going to spend $10, $20 more a month than they were spending. It is taking that Netflix habitual audience and turning them into a Hulu or Disney Plus or a combined, which is what Disney is pushing, this combined bundle um, streaming audience. That way they're going to them first. This matters to who first and foremost? Advertisers, because if your engagement increases, now your CPMs can increase. With HBO and Netflix, the overlap of that audience is not necessarily as high. It's one platform to one platform. But for Netflix, which is in the middle of a major churn crisis, like every single other streaming service in the United States, that HBO programming shows really, really strong retention capabilities. So as you're bringing out your new programming, as you're cutting down spending on your new programming, and as you're finding ways to say, hey, we have programming that you're interested in, whether it is highbrow stuff like Insecure or middle-of-the-road America stuff like Suits, all of this is here on top of the original programming we have. Have. And for Netflix, that gives them the ability to reduce their churn rate while increasing prices and cutting down on password sharing uh, in order to then increase their investing in content furthermore globally and work with some more price conscious territories without worrying about losing tons of revenue. My number two power move of the year, which is the suits of it all, getting suits on Netflix and turning it into the show of the summer 
partially because of the strike. I think there was less content for people to be interested in. But I also just think Netflix is very good at taking other people's shows and turning them into hits. The question I have with Suits is, is the success of Suits this summer going to allow Netflix to pay less for licensed content under the argument that if you want your show to be reinvigorated and get all this value and reinvention and allow you to do spinoffs and put the final season on your own platform and bring people there, we're going to pay less for that content? Or is everybody else going to say, okay, you can't pay us nothing for these shows and then turn them into huge hits. You have to up the spend to pay us what the appropriate value is to you to license this. My assumption, and this comes from both working with certain clients at my my role at Parrot and also just from my my read of the industry, is that it will lead to companies like NBC Universal or Paramount asking for more upfront because I think the difficulty again is whether or not you do a spin-off of a show like Suits. Are people going to care about that in a year from now? Are they going to care about that a year and a half, two years from now? Probably not, because what was really important, again, about Netflix was the platform. It was this idea that you're already there. And I think that is where the bottom line for Netflix really continues to grow, is this ability to say, well, we have this really strong retention um, gate for for all of these, these customers looking for their types of programming, which feels very much like Netflix in 2013, 2014. Um, and so what I would say is that I think a lot of these companies' executives would know that and say, we're happy to kind of give you some of this programming, but it's going to cost more. That said, I still think it costs less than it would have done four or five years ago. Mm-hmm. Well, the market has cooled a lot uh, overall. Yeah, exactly. So I think Netflix still gets a discount. Yeah, if I'm a licensing executive in Netflix, I'm just like, okay, fine. Take your show to Peacock. Nobody will watch it. You may get a little bit more money there, but great. You'll come to us in two years and want to put it on Netflix so that people will watch it and then you will get some value out of this and then put it on your own platform where it's now a huge property that people have been talking about for six months. So I don't know. I don't know the answer to that. All right. So your third power move of the year in streaming. Give it to me. Disney finally realizing that they have the strongest marketing tool in the world through ABC and taking titles like Only Murders in the Building and putting that on ABC. Wait, so you're talking about taking streaming shows that were exclusive to streaming and putting them on broadcast. And ABC is going to air only murders in the building. And basically, this is a combination of factors. I think Disney is recognizing that they need to get more value out of these shows because they are going to be spending less on content because they are cutting costs across the board. I think it's also a recognition that the streaming audience is different from the linear audience and you don't necessarily cannibalize the audience by putting them on multiple platforms. It's also, I think, a recognition that the spend, spend, spend to grow, grow, grow in streaming is not the only goal now and that you don't have to have everything exclusive to the streaming service in order to boost those services at the expense of all of your linear properties. And it's sort of like, a, of course they are. Why wouldn't you just put things on different platforms every time? They're not putting the first run of Only Murders in the Building on ABC. They are putting old episodes. You look at the broadcast networks and yes, viewership continues to decline quarter after quarter, year after year, but it's still over the air accessible television. And so if you want to create an event, if you want to bring more of those potential audiences into those shows and maybe convert some of those audiences, to your point, it's not a first run when the idea is if you like it, you'll come convert. I think 
you know, we're seeing this happening with uh, CBS and Yellowstone. We're seeing them kind of do similar stuff. And they use Yellowstone with the NFL to really make sure they've got that Sunday yeah, uh, that package, including play, 60 though. Minutes. No, but I think part of the learnings from that is we don't necessarily have to keep these as separate. And I think what you will continue to see, there's no reason why you can't have a show like Loki simulcast both the first episode, whatever it might be, on Disney Plus and ABC. And then the second episode, have it right afterwards, make that a Disney Plus exclusive. Right, that audience is already there, and so if you can bring them to streaming, first of all, that's awesome for your subscription revenue. But more importantly, the advertisement play—you're actually going to double your advertising revenue because you can get different advertising companies along those shows. And so, finding ways to use your entire flywheel, which is what Disney has always been exceptionally good at, I think is really important. It feels like for a long time, the companies ignored broadcast. Ignore cable, I get it. Like, whatever, cable's its own issue. But they ignored broadcast to kind of focus on streaming, and they brought some of their broadcast shows to streaming. And I think using streaming series, not in their first run, or finding ways to make it feel like an event, feeling like it's a real tentpole moment, and using those broadcast audiences, especially if you want to build it around football or, or hockey or whatever. No, or Yellowstone. Be. I mean, look what Yellowstone, Yellowstone. has done on Paramount Network, the linear cable channel, where they were getting you know huge audiences for Yellowstone, but they didn't own the streaming rights to Yellowstone. So they would put the first episode of 1883 or 1923 or whatever Taylor Sheridan show on Paramount Network and then just plug the shit out of it and say, if you want more, here's Paramount Plus. It's only $6.99 to start. And that's been a pretty successful revenue and subscriber driver for Paramount Plus. And it, I think it makes sense for the others to do it. All right. My third, and, and I'm going to jam a bunch of things into this third one, because I think they're all sort of kind of similar. And it's the sports game. First of all, it's Max deciding it's cool to just start airing TNT NBA games and other sports on the Max service. Pluto TV, the free service, got a messy MLS game. Uh, which was a big driver for them. And Netflix doing their first live sporting event, even though it was a fake golf tournament with F1 pros and golf people. It was a live sporting event on Netflix. I think those three combined are sports transition over to streaming power moves of the year. Do you think Netflix emerges? I mean, this is the eternal question as a true contender for live sports. Oh, of course they are. I mean, my theory on this is that I actually think the sports leagues probably need Netflix more than Netflix needs the sports leagues right now. I mean, all of these leagues, with the exception of the NFL, are trying to figure out how to grow their audience, right? I guess the NFL is too, but they're pretty much, <laughs> they're doing pretty well. And if I'm the commissioner of MLB or NBA or MLS or NHL, I am thinking, okay, the audience, the younger audience is moving to this platform. How am I going to capture them? And there is one place that is guaranteed to get an audience. And the first league that goes into Netflix with some games is going to instantly capture that Netflix audience. So I think Netflix has a lot of leverage here. You know, they have said, we're not interested in live sports right now. They said it's too expensive. The rights fees are astronomical right now. We're at peak sports, I've heard it called. But one of these leagues will figure out how to put some games on Netflix and it will be a game changer. Yeah, and I think that conversation with Netflix has to include a few critical points, right? It's global rights. 
because Netflix, Mm -hmm. 80% of all new Netflix signups are coming from international markets. It is the ability to create some form of mobile game where they are now leading head into the the gaming initiative. It is an aspect of can we do some form of live access in terms of can we sell tickets to an event? What are we doing with this? How do we recoup that? So I think looking at all of Netflix's varied interests that they've been been investing in, that they're clearly interested in, that aren't just the live rights uh, to the games, which are obviously very important itself, um, I think that is going to be the way to get into Netflix. And I also think the real contender in streaming for sports is going to be the one who figures out how to ease the pain of trying to find a lot of these sports. Well, that's a separate issue. The super app or whatever ESPN wants or any of those things. So my answer on Netflix is I think that they are silly to deny this, that it will eventually happen. The Max thing is interesting because we don't know how well the NBA games and MLB playoffs did on Max. But they're definitely promoting it. If you go to the interface, like I do, it, you know, I'm sure the algorithm tells them I'm interested in sports. And it shows it to me a lot. Uh, and they just kind of did this. I mean, th- forever, there was this third rail that the linear networks did not dare put their content directly on the streaming service because the carriage deals with the cable providers prevented them from doing that. Max just kind of said, you know what, we're going to do that with sports. We're going to do it with CNN. And they're now kind of after the fact working out what those deals look like. So I think that's kind of a power move. All right. So we've laid out our three streaming power moves of the year. Uh, are we prepared to vote on the on the biggest power move of the year? Yeah, let's do it. All right, you go first. What do you think it is? Have I convinced you of anything? I think it's old shows on streaming platforms or kind of the resurgence so suits, of the suit yeah. factor. You know what? Sadly, I'm going to agree with you. The Suits phenomenon, I think, is the streaming power move of the year. Netflix taking a you know six, seven-year-old NBC Universal show with Meghan Markle and turning it into the show of the summer has got to be the power move. It just says everything you need to know about where we are in the streaming wars right now. It's Netflix and everyone else. It's the beautiful resurgence of normcore television, and I <laughs> love that. You know, Lucas is watching Suits. He would, he would be offended if you called him normcore. I would never call Lucas Normcore. I would call myself Normcore. <laughs> but it's not the resurgence. It's sort of, it's always been there. Like right. people watch TV to not think about how to find these shows. They just want them to be there. And, that, and Suits is like your friend that pops up every time you turn it on. It's like Law and Order. You give me a Suits or a Dick Wolf show and I'll watch it for yeah. 25 seasons. So no other contenders. This is the power move of the year. So the Black Friday story, I think, is interesting, but I think it'll be the power story in five, six, seven years. Yeah, but I think it's I like the beginning of it. Yeah, and some of the other stuff, the licensing and you know the sports, that's going to play out over years. Suits, right. suits wins. Aaron Korsh, creator of Suits, you have had the power move of the year, even though you had nothing to do with it. It's a, some anonymous licensing executive at Netflix who wins the power move of the year. All right, thank you very much, Julia. Thanks for having me, Matt. We are back with the call sheet. Craig, get excited for the Oscars. I love the Oscars. I'm in. Every year I watch. You know, I'm going to see if we can get you invited to the Oscars this year. I have a fresh new uh, tuxedo from my wedding that I can Exactly. Wear. Okay. That, it, it's happening. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hopefully get you invited this year. They are doing something different this year. They are starting the show an hour earlier. It's going to air at 7 p.m. Eastern, which is 4 p.m. Pacific on ABC. And they're doing this for a couple of reasons, not just to torture everyone on the West Coast who's going to have to like wake up early to get dressed and 
get to the show on time. They are doing it so they can juice the ratings. I mean, what they found is that the viewership of the show tends to trail off at the end. This is a long show, three and a half hours typically or more. And after about 10, 30, 11, people are just out on the East Coast, even though the biggest categories are saved to the end. So they're trying to Super Bowlize this thing and bring it earlier, get more people on the East Coast to stay with it longer and have a time slot after the show now where they can put an original episode of Abbott Elementary and hopefully juice the ratings of that. So I think it's a smart move. My prediction is the ratings for the Oscars are going to go up this year because of this. And you think this new time change will stick? Well, we'll see how it does. But I do think so, yeah. I mean, the Oscars have a couple of interesting things going for them this year in the Barbenheimer phenomenon because both those movies are likely going to be nominated for Best Picture. And the biggest boost to Oscar ratings is always when people have seen the movies that are nominated. The Academy's problem over the past 15, 20 years has been that the movies that get nominated are often not movies that people have seen. This year, at least with Barbie and Oppenheimer, they're going to be across the board contenders with tons of nominations, and that could get people interested. Last year was 20 million, about 20 million viewers, which was actually up almost double digits from the year before, which the COVID stuff really killed the Oscars. So they were up this year. I think they're going to be up even more. I wouldn't be surprised if it's a 10, 15% increase. It's just a shame that we can't get the Oscars on streaming. I really do think that it would be successful if we could get it on streaming somehow. Listen, the contracts in this deal, the Academy makes, I think it's almost $90 million plus bonuses for ratings on this deal. I mean, it is an extraordinary deal with ABC, something that if they had to do it right now, that deal would not happen on those terms. I mean, we see the Golden Globes and the Golden Globes have been hit with a bunch of scandal, but the Golden Globes used to license for about $60 million a year. From my sources, it is down to between 10 and 20 million this year. But, you know, they got Kimmel back. They got some movies that people have seen. So we'll see if it translates into higher ratings. I think it will. And Craig, hopefully you will be there to experience the <laughs> butt numbing of sitting for three and a half hours while they uh, they announce the awards. Yeah, 4 p.m. is no big deal on a Sunday to me. It's also looking at the calendar. It's Daylight Savings Day. So the celebrities are going to have two less hours to get ready now. Oh, man, that's a great point. Yeah. Plus, it's going to feel a little weirder also uh, when people hit the bar at like 4.30 in the afternoon, which is what always happens at the Oscars after you know it starts, people end up in the bar, but whatever, we'll see. All right, that's the show for today. I want to thank my guest, Julie Alexander. I want to thank producer Craig Horlbeck, our editor, Jesse Lopez, and I want to thank you. We will see you next week. 